Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, a podcast by the Public Transport Association Australia, New Zealand. Each episode, we interview a top female executive from the public transport sector in Australia, New Zealand and around the world. If you're interested in leadership, workplace gender equality or building clean, green transport for the future, this is the podcast for you. Hello, and thanks for joining me on this episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm your guest host, Katie Cooper, the Chief Executive Officer of Metro Tasmania. I'm also a Board Director of the Public Transport Association Australia and New Zealand. Today, we welcome to the podcast a very good friend of the Public Transport Association of Australia and New Zealand. She delivered a keynote presentation at the first annual ANZ Public Transport Conference this year on the topic of women in transit, trip chaining, pink tax and gender inclusivity, and also spoke on the panel Investing in Equity, Innovation and Technology, Achieving Mobility for All. Chrissy Dittmore is the Head of Public Policy in North America for Optibus and is an incredibly passionate professional in transport. Chrissy, welcome to Women Who Move Nations. Thank you, Katie. I am very excited to be here. Fantastic. Let's start things off today with a question that gives our wonderful listeners a little bit of background about you. You're the Head of Public Policy in North America at Optibus. Can you tell us a little bit about your role and your career journey that led you to get this role? I have an absolutely hilarious career journey. I think for most people that come into public transportation, actually, it's a familiar story. A lot of people happen into this industry, and that's how I got here. I know that it's, it's becoming more prevalent that you can actually study public transportation now. When I was younger, that wasn't really something that you could even study. So I'm glad to see so many universities taking this on, understanding the importance of transportation, service, operations, all of these things, because urban planning was typically the only career that you could go through. But I came to this career as a performer. I started (laughs) a career in, in performing before coming into a place where there wasn't really that as a job. And so I had to actually lean back on having a bachelor's. And that's really what brought me here, that part of my performing life was traveling the world and using public transportation everywhere I went. And so in my interview, I got to actually say, when I was in Greece, this is what it was like taking the train system. And when I was in Berlin, this is what it was like taking the bus system. And these are all of the differences of how you pay for those systems. So it was that travel early in life that brought me to public transportation. I love how people have non-traditional career journeys to get from where they're going. I think that's fabulous. I mean, you've obviously travelled the world. You've been working in public transport for over 15 years and you you really have a reputation and are known for your dedication about leveraging technology for the public good. What was it about Optibus that inspired you to join their organisation? I tend to look for companies that are working on the things that I think are important for the industry to be working on right now. Most people, I think look through job ads of jobs that they want to do. And I sort of do the opposite. I go and tell companies, hey, you need the things that I can do because this is what you're working on. And the thing that Optibus was working on that I was interested in is their approach to open data standards. And they have a passion and an interest in 
really enhancing the public good by offering open data and that that layer of interoperability among operating systems is a really important part of how we create transit systems that can be utilized easier by the public. It's a fascinating idea and an approach for, I guess, finding roles that really provide you value and where you can provide value back, which is great. So thinking about that, with the big, I guess, picture questions for you, what are the key innovations do you think need to be implemented in public transport to grow our mode share and to really try and transition people out of their private cars and and into public transport? I believe that one of the main barriers of what holds public transportation back internationally is the policy that surrounds it. It's why I've spent my career in public policy, because it's always the policy that defines how we are funded, what kinds of resources we can use for different kinds of services. And an absence of an understanding of how to leverage and shape what those policies are that guide our industry, then the industry is at a disadvantage. And so I think that for part of what we really need to make public transport grow is a access to all of the data that's now going to simply be necessary to manage our services in a way that is interoperable with everything that comes down the line So I think that this concept of interoperability can relate not just internally to the management of the systems, that all of the different technologies that I need to put service on the road most efficiently, that's one kind of interoperability. And now as an industry, we need to make sure that we're creating systems that can take in all of the additional new modes that are yet to even be developed so that we we don't have to future-proof individual service offerings. We have to future-proof our ability to interoperable each of those services, so interoperate them. I think that's a really good point, particularly around new forms of mobility are emerging now and will continue to emerge over the rest of our of our lifetime, I'm sure. So part of your role, Chrissy, at, at Optibus is about really um, enriching the relationship between, obviously, you know, government sectors, but the technology that's needed to work in that space. What are the key challenges and opportunities do you think exist in that space? And a a sort of follow-up question on that is, what are you seeing happening? What are the good things that you're seeing happening in the US in terms of government and private sector collaboration that perhaps Australia or other jurisdictions could learn from? So having a good understanding of both of those regions is actually why I am really excited about the partnership, and I'm sure we'll get to that, that Public Transit Australia New Zealand has made with the American Public Transit Association. And I know we'll talk about that in a minute, but I think mm. that there's a lot about the way that we approach our systems that's very similar. So part of that is, in the U.S., an access to funds that can be utilized in many different ways. So flexibility in the funding systems is one of the things that I think we can share learnings on. And that increasing, and by that I mean, we'll probably learn more from you (laughs) on, on how systems can be funded at higher levels and what that actually translates into in terms of increased service. 
one of the things that we're constantly trying to educate our lawmakers are is the benefit of public transit and how we make that happen. So I think the learning is going to happen both ways. And I think one of the things that the U.S. can teach PTANs is how to ensure that you are creating systems that are safe and accessible to a very diverse set of users. And so I think that there's probably honestly learnings on both sides of both of those topics. So it's really hard to say what one can teach the other, because I think the point is learning from each other and that in each region, even in each of those countries, that there's been progress forwards and sometimes backwards on some of these things. I think you're right, Chrissy, around the requirements or the, the benefits of a partnership between the associations because it enables us to, you know, learn from each other, but also it's much more efficient and understanding what each jurisdiction is doing and, and how we can learn from each other's successes, but also, you know, perhaps our mistakes. One of the things we were talking about then was, you know, the relationship between technology and government sectors. I'm really curious to understand your view on how technology is really able to work in that policy space and particularly, you know, in that government policy space. I think one of the hardest things that public transport has yet to learn is that technology is always going to go faster than they can procure for. So trying to identify upfront what technology specifications are necessary that go into RFPs and bids. I think that becomes an almost untenable process moving forward. So we have to learn that we're trying to search for outcomes and not specificity in what technology can do. So I think that part of what the public good can shift to is a understanding of what end goal they are looking to solve for and that they would need to create requirements around those things instead of this is the widget and this is the very specific spectrum that I want that widget to live on and instead create requirements that that technology can then build towards and in many ways throughout the life cycle of that technology procurement of a contract cycle, there's going to be so much that changes that we're almost limiting ourselves by requiring these things of technology companies that can move faster than the public sector typically can in that same regard. I think that's a really good piece of advice. And I think that's something that, um, I mean, your comment around outcome versus specificity, I think is is absolutely on point and something that we all collectively can um, can think about in a number of our procurements, not just specifically about technology. Chrissy, you're on the board of directors for the Phoenix Mobility Rising, which is a non-for-profit um, that enhances transportation options for the vulnerable and underserved communities and increases mobility for all. What role does or can technology play do you feel in addressing that mobility inequality? One of the things that I love about Phoenix and the the difference in approach that you can be trying to do a transportation nonprofit, which is so hard, is that they are working on some of the hardest problems that public transportation faces. The people who are so rural that they have no options and want to live in place or 
seniors that are simply trying to utilize the system in their city the way that everyone else does. So I, I enjoy that Phoenix is part of the solution to solving some of those problems. So I think one of the things that I'm constantly having people consider is that technology informs and people decide. Technology can help you make choices. What kind of service should you put on the road? Where do you need expansion capability based on what you've learned of how people have used your system? What can you shift in real time when you experience service interruptions? Where are all of these things? These are all things that data and technology can help us make better operational choices on, but people have to decide those things. So involving the community and making sure that their voices are heard is, I think, one of the most important opportunities of our time so that we can repair previous structural harm that came from from structural racist policies that were developed, especially in the U.S., and I'm sure internationally, but how we can utilize the changes that we make in the future to both create a better future and repair some of that harm that has already been done. And so that is why you have to leverage technology in ways that open that door and understand that technology is only part of that solution, that people have to be part of that as well. You've got some great, I guess, catch statements, which are really resonating with me, Chrissy, which is, you know, tech informs, but people decide. Um, I think that's very, very true. You're also a, a director on um, the American Public Transport Association, or APTA. Um, APTA is the equivalent of PTANS here in, um, in North America, and obviously we referred earlier to our partnership with them. What do you think are some of the most valuable contributions associations like APTA or PTANZ make to the public transport industry? I know one of the main reasons why I interacted with APTA early in my career is it's the meeting place. It is where you are going to make all of the connections that carry you through your career, that give you the people that you need to lean on when you're going through difficult times professionally, the resources of other projects and programs that maybe you are at a new agency and didn't get to do at a previous agency, but need to learn from. It's it's a just fountain of knowledge. And it's the personal interactions that really make that knowledge turn into wisdom. And so I think that knowledge is when you apply and that by applying knowledge, now you bring wisdom to that problem set. And so the people that you learn from, and I know that that's the same spirit of collaboration that I felt, I know, when I spoke at your conference earlier this year. So I'm sure that that's a lot of the benefit. And I think one of the things that we can teach, some of the value that comes from what what we do in North America is shaping some of the policy around it. So it's not all about asking for money. It is APTA going to legislators and saying, thank you for creating this new policy. And this is what happened because of it. Or this is something that we know that you've been discussing. And there is perhaps a new person in charge of that administration, whether it's at the local or national level, what whoever the person is or the people are that are making decisions on behalf of your agency. 
they are dictating to you the terms of how you're going to operate over time. And it becomes so important as we shift into technologies that, that people really truly don't understand. In the US, a lot of times it's the staff that are part of a congressional office that know the most about mm -hmm. what's going on in these changes. And so you want to be able to tell them how those decisions are going to impact you. We have a shift to electrification. Everybody is going to replace X amount of buses in this by this number of years. And that's what we're going to do. Well, have we talked to the utilities? Do we even have any say over how we're going to connect those services? Have we had enough training of our staff and our emergency services to know what happens if an electric bus catches fire? There's so many questions that lawmakers don't even know to ask that we can, as the industry, help shape their thought process behind where those requirements come from and what success looks like. And I think that's very important because if we can demonstrate the value of our knowledge, that then they can take that and create better legislation. And this is an area that I think APTA has done really well over the years. And one of the areas that PTIMS can grow into value with all of your membership by doing some of that same work as well. If you're enjoying Women Who Move Nations, make sure you follow us on your favorite podcast platforms and rate the show to help more people find us. Follow the Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand to learn more about public transport and to keep up to date with all our events and activities. Our website is ptaanz.org. We're also on LinkedIn. Just search Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. And our Twitter handle is ptaanz underscore. If you have any feedback or questions, please send us an email at info at ptaanz.org. I think that's a, uh, just, I think really applicable to our space as well, Chrissy. If I think about the Australian and New Zealand context, um, I think we're obviously in scale significantly smaller than America, but I do think the whole concept, uh, I mean, I think your reference point about electrification is so true, whether it be zero emission buses of whichever form it may be, hydrogen or battery electric. It's actually not so much the bus and the driving it down the road that's necessarily the complex or the particularly expensive component. It's really the infrastructure behind it that, that is the whole system or supply chain, perhaps, of, of how we deliver those services to customers that's really, um, really absolutely key. I know one of the things you referred to in the reference point, then was about, you know, sharing the lessons learned. If we think about you specifically, perhaps, rather than necessarily um, the industry now, I'm really curious to learn more about what is one of the bigger lessons that you've learned in shaping your career to move, you know, from role to role or perhaps even you know, when you move from industry, but what's, what are some of the lessons that you can perhaps share with us? I love this question. I, I actually don't believe I've ever been asked this question. The thing in my career that I think is the most important is my ability to adapt and my willingness to adapt. And I would recommend that. And it's so hard for people to want to step outside of what they know or what they're comfortable with, but our industry has to do it all the time. So where I started in my career as a project manager for a van pool company in Anchorage, Alaska, into 
representing international public policy and global relations. It's a fascinating growth matrix, but it comes from the willingness to learn. I consider myself a lifetime learner. I love reading all of the newest research and all of attending community events where you have meetings, where you hear about individual bus riders and what they have to experience. And it it instills so much value in, number one, the kinds of conversations that I can tell legislators on what matters and why, but humanizing these decisions. So adapting through all of the different technologies over the years. So as a service operator, working inside a public transit agency, and then into learning technology, CAD AVL and fare collection systems and ITS management systems and all of the 6 million different acronyms that each of those different kinds of technologies have. And then even the acronyms in our own industry. We do love a good Uh, acronym, don't we? (laughs) We do. And as as a young person, there was a program in the U.S. called CMAC. And I remember the first time I heard it was at a manager's meeting talking about how these programs are funded. We're going to get some new marketing money through CMAC. And I wrote in my notes, S-E-A-M-A-C-K. And I'll go learn about that later. I don't want to ask it in front of the room because clearly everyone else knows what's going on. And when I tried to look for that, it's actually C-M-A-Q. It's an acronym for Congestion (laughs) Mitigation Air Quality. And it is one of the programs for which innovation is funded in the U.S. And I just think of that all the time as the example of what we don't yet know as new people in the industry and how we can grow into that knowledge that then becomes wisdom. But I think the one thing that I, in my career, have appreciated most and have tried to continue to do most is willing to adapt. And sometimes that also means adapting what I think about a certain topic and being able to change that based on changing norms or learning new things, learning from new people that give me a different perspective. That's really interesting advice, Chrissy. I think one of the themes I'm taking from what you're talking about is, you know, being flexible in thinking, but also I think the really key one, which is something that I um, I very much admire in people but and, and encourage people in their career journey to do is to be curious and to be curious so like you when you didn't know an acronym you were going to go and find out it wasn't just that you accepted you didn't know it you wanted to go and learn more about it and I think that's a, a wonderful thing I mean you obviously you seem like a very confident woman Chrissy you come across with with a lot of um, gravitas and confidence which is great that isn't something that necessarily comes naturally to to everybody what advice and I'm sure you've heard of it but what advice do you have for women who are suffering from imposter syndrome and how, you know, what are any of your tips to either manage it or have you ever felt that yourself? My favorite imposter syndrome story came through Twitter in 2021. And a person in our industry who is a longtime mentee of mine was talking to Dion Warwick on Twitter. Like, how hilarious <laughs> is this? And he said, Dave Sorrell, who works at, at UCLA, he said, Auntie Warwick, how did you overcome imposter syndrome in your career? And Madame Warwick responds by saying, I had to look that up. And I just, I thought it was such a boss move to say, I I I don't even know what you're talking about. 
when it comes to imposter syndrome. And I would just love to say that I don't experience imposter syndrome. And I, I know that I have a air of confidence, like you say, and I just want to say for every woman out there, no one is that confident all the time. So the way that I manage that is I have a group of other women and this group of women are people that we have been through a lot of ups and downs together in our careers. And I'll add that this group of women grows over time because there are people who are quite early in their career now and in, in some other industries. So we've now brought in some of these like small group of women that can talk to each other that are in the climate investment space and that are in the startup space and working with founders. So it's important to grow your network outside of just your little echo chamber of people, but have people that you can absolutely count on to tell you the truth. And I will add that in a very recent part of this, I was asked to interview for a position. I'm not going anywhere, don't worry. But it was a very high level position. I'm very honored to have been asked to even interview for it. And in the moment, I was telling this group of girlfriends about it. And I said, and I'm not qualified, they're not going to pick me. And one of the women spoke up instantly. And this is a young woman in the climate tech space. And she said, that is absolutely a lie. You are more than qualified for that position. And I just like, it snapped me back into confidence. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. And by the way, I was more than qualified when they sent the list of qualifications. She's right. I was overqualified for the position, even though I thought it was just a huge, huge accomplishment to even be asked to, to interview for it. And it just showed me that no matter how good you are or how confident you are or how long you've been in this industry, at some point you're going to doubt yourself and you can't just rely on yourself to pull, pull you out of it. It's really important to have people that you trust that can show you when you doubt yourself. I think that's really good advice. In fact, it's, it's, it's funny that you've discovered that almost naturally amongst a, and, and created that group of, of both supporters. But I think there's a key in what you said in that they're honest as well. Um, they're supporting, but they're honest with you. And if I think back, I know that um, through some of the leadership training that even Harvard do, they talk about having a board of advisors around you. And we're talking about, you know, exactly what you're saying with probably a fancier title. But they're just people that have got your back, but will, you know, be honest and truthful for you. So I think that's a great way of, of combating that occasional dip in confidence that we all suffer from sometimes. Do you have any tips, Christy, on how to handle situations whether, you know, we've talked a bit about how they, when you doubt yourself or your confidence is low, obviously having a peer group around you or a board of advisors or, you know, your uh, your group of trusted insiders is really important. What about yourself? I mean, when you perform, for example, how do you boost yourself up to stay on, on the audience or to stay, have that high energy when you're with you know, standing in front of a room full of people about to perform? Is it similar in a corporate world or is it quite different? You know, I'm not sure I really ever thought about it, but it is similar. It's very similar to performing on a stage, uh, going into all of these community meetings and interacting with strangers. And it's not that you're bringing a character to the situation. You're still being yourself, but it's about bringing a 
reliability. So when you are performing, you have a script and you know what you're going to say. And so you're executing against that script. When you are interacting in this industry, you're relying on your knowledge. And many times people go, say, to present in a conference and they're relying on their slides. And in reality, you know everything that you're getting ready to say. And so some of my confidence comes from, I know without a doubt that I know what I'm talking about and no one can take that from me. So it's easy to walk into a room and if all of the technology went down in the conference room behind me, I can still give a speech that is compelling because I know exactly the end result that I want to come out of that conversation. And so I, I've never thought of it that way until you bring it up. Thank you, Katie. But yeah, <laughs> I think they're very similar. Um, and now my mind is blown. So thank you. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. <laughs> You've had an amazing career. One of the things that, you know, some people obviously work in a planned environment with their career and um, some people seize opportunities on the way. You referred earlier to the fact that you seek out opportunities that resonate with you but I am curious from a career perspective have you ever had a plan or are you more I'm just going to go and achieve it or actually there's an opportunity come my way I'm going to maximize this how do you manage your career in that sense I am ridiculously planful of my life in general and I would love to say that I have no control issues but I clearly have control (laughs) issues so so I, I also think that a lot of my success comes from being in the right place at the right time. And so I, I know that there's a mix, that I'm quite fortunate to have a lot of the access and experiences that I've had. I have a lot of people in the industry who have brought me along. And so I try hard to do that for other people as well. But when it comes to shaping where I want to go, that has mm. been intentional. There are lots of times I say that I'm a bit of a futurist. And that's just something that I understand about myself now that I didn't understand about myself when I was younger. And I would be in meetings and hear things and know in my head what that was going to look like 10 years from now and how that was never going to work. And clearly, it would be so plain to everyone else. And so I shouldn't say anything because then I would be making people feel like I was belittling what they were saying. And in reality, no, no one around me could see that far ahead. And so now I trust that gut more of Mm. saying those things. But in the, in the decision process of careers, I read a book by a woman who used to be a CEO at at us transit agencies named Grace Kronikan. And she has a book called flats on the boardroom boots on the ground. And it establishes memoirs of a lot of women in the U.S. transportation market that pushed our industry forward. And over the years of knowing some of those women after reading their bios and and knowing there's, there's probably enough women in this industry pushing things forward to have a volume two, three, and four. I was at a dinner at APTA with, with some amazing women and one of the women, Deb Walton-Finn, was talking about, so when I established New Jersey Transit, and I'm like, well, that's quite a statement. I just <laughs> established this transit agency because the governor let me do this. Like, it's it's a phenomenal to hear women's stories. But one of the women that was profiled in Grace's book talked about targeting her next job at her current job. And so she spent 
a year or two in advance, shaping the next thing that she wanted to go do. Whether she ever went and did it or not, she was constantly shaping the next thing that either she wanted to do or could put someone in the position to say, hey, I know someone that can do that. But a constant eye on where I might want to do something because the reality of our industry is sometimes things change and you don't want to stay where you are. And sometimes decisions are made for you because a company had to let people go or I, or you have a spouse that moves you someplace. There are just things that happen in life that you want to have been prepared for mentally. And I just, I use that advice all the time of constantly shaping where I want to learn next and what I want to work on next. I don't typically target companies. I target the work. And so I want to say, what is the work that I think is going to be important in a few years and shaping companies needs around that work so that when they are ready for it, that there are people that can do that work. Wow, that's really fascinating. The futuristic side of that, I think, is just absolutely brilliant. Chrissy, we've nearly gone through all our questions today, but something we do um, love to ask our, our guests is, what advice do you have for women who are younger or perhaps earlier in their careers? Always be willing to meet people regardless of title. And I think that a lot of people young in their career spend so much time at industry events trying to make connections with CEOs and they want to get their foot in the door and and talk to the important people. And I just want to say to any young people, you are the important people of our industry. The future is who's going to be making the better choices for our environment, for our operating services. And you don't need to be BFFs with all of the CEOs. And part of what I have found the most value and what fills my cup as an individual in the industry has been the relationships that I built early on in my career. And not just with people my own age or in in my age group, with people that were in front of and behind me from both an experience perspective and an age perspective, because all of those things, it, it shapes you, it makes you much more complete as a human and as a person in the industry to bring in those experiences. But by working on those early on in your career, that's how you have the people you can trust. You don't get that overnight. So so get your cohort of people and have an affinity group around all of those experiences that you can share throughout your career. And then guess what? 10, 15 years goes by real fast. And now you're in positions of leadership and you are the ones who are going to be shaping our future. So, so focus on that and don't try to move too far too fast. Fantastic advice, Chrissy. And I think um, that diversity of, of thinking or diversity of input into your thinking is just so absolutely critical. One of the things you are known for, Chrissy, is being our transit songstress. So perhaps to wrap us up today, would you mind giving us a quick rendition of maybe one or two of your favourite songs? Oh my gosh, this is hilarious. And <laughs> I guess at this point, if you call yourself the transit songstress, it's going to be asked. So and you know what? This has been a conversation that really did take me back memory-wise to my roots 
in my career, where I started. And so the first time that the transit songstress actually made her debut uh, was when I worked at the Vanpool company. And I made a video, Vanpools are a girl's best friend. And I'm sure not a lot of people have seen it because it's now, I don't know, 15 years old. <laughs> and it it won an After Ad Wheels Award, which is an award that I received. The second one, Optibus received a Ad Wheels Award, which is Aptas Marketing Awards, at this past conference for our driver shortage music video. But I think I'm going to end with the Van Pools are a girl's best friend because because it's a throwback kind of show anyway. So that is driving alone is. Not environmental, so van pools are a girl's best friend. When I leave my home to commute on my own, I feel awful alone. So it'd be nice to share the ride. I know where to go to find folks on the road so we can all just jump on a van. We'll start at our houses, work and home to our spouses. Van pools are a girl's best friend. And now you're my best friend. <laughs> that was very uh, inspiring. No, Chrissy, that was wonderful. Thank you. The next time you're in Australia, I think uh, I see a karaoke night uh, being arranged somehow. Which will be Transit karaoke. <laughs> I mean. Look, it's been wonderful speaking with you today and hearing about your impressive career. And also, thank you for sharing everything that you've learned along the way. Um, we really appreciate you joining us and sharing your insights. Thanks very much, Chrissy Dittmore. That was Chrissy Dittmore, the Head of Public Policy in North America for Optibus. I'm your guest host, Katie Cooper, and you've been listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. This series is produced by Dylan Adler and Sophia Dickinson for the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. To find out more, please visit our website, ptaanz.org. Tune in for more soon.